glad you all made it to church today. I, I, feel, I feel like a, the, the cards are kind of stacked against me this morning. I mean, not only are we down a sl- an hour of sleep, but I mean, the gloomy clouds, really, really, Lord? Like, I mean, if, if someone pulls out uh, like a blanket and a pillow, I'm just going to toss in the towel. We're just going to call it a day. But if, if we need to do a five-minute, you know, coffee pit stop, we can do that too. Feel free to refill all morning. Um, well, with that said, that's, that's a terrible way to start a sermon. Uh, with that said, uh, it's good to, good to be with you back in God's Word this morning. Uh, if you are here as a visitor, uh, welcome. Can't, cannot thank you enough for joining us, however you found your way into our seats this morning. We're just really glad that you're here. Uh, we have been uh, working our way through an Old Testament book in the Bible. Uh, it's the book of Exodus. Uh, so if you did bring a Bible with you, you're welcome to, to open that now uh, or turn that on. If you don't have a Bible, uh, that's fine. We've, we've got the words projected for you, and we do love to give away Bibles there in the lobby, so we'll have those available for you. Uh, this morning, we're picking up where uh, I left off last uh, week, and we're going to be in chapter 6 of Exodus, uh, beginning in verse 2. I'm going to go down through verse 13 this morning, but uh, before we read the passage, um, just a little, a little insight into, again, I kind of I feel like I do this a lot, um, but I don't know, as, as a pastor and preacher and church planner, I feel like I need to like tell you about how my life works. So here's, here's another thing about how my life works. Um, I get random thoughts a lot. Um, as, as, a, as a regular Bible preacher, you're always looking for things to illustrate truth and those kinds of things. And um, I've struggled over the years, especially with the advancement of technology, of how to record um, the things I'm thinking about because they come at the strangest moments, right? I mean, they never, they rarely come when I'm like sitting at the desk, you know, Bible open, coffee steaming. Like, they're always like traffic jam. Like, I just came up with an idea. And my wife, she's brilliant, um, she reminded me of this little smartphone device that all of us carry in our pockets. Uh, she reminded me that there's a, a voice recorder app on there. And so she's like, why don't you just like talk into your phone and record your randomness? Because um, oftentimes what I'll do is I'll ask her to remember. I'll be like, hey, let me tell you about this real quick. If you could remember that for me, I'll, I'll come back later. She, she reminded me about this. And um, it's really proved pretty helpful um, on, a, on a number of occasions where I will turn the voice recorder app on to record some profound or maybe less than profound thing that I've come up with um, to remind myself of later. And so I'll have just a kind of a list of random things and, and I'll title them later like so I remember what it was about. But it's just a way that I can kind of provoke and stir up memory for myself um, of things that are important to me. Um, today's passage is a, is a bit like... Um, like that. It's, it's a conversation uh, that's worthy of being recorded and then replayed over and over again. Um, it's a conversation between uh, Moses and God, and um, God does a lot of the, t- the, the speaking here. Um, and, you know, I just, I just thought of that as I was working through this passage this week. So um, this passage, if you're here today um, and you've got everything figured out, like, you know, like you've, you've got the Bible kind of in and out, you're, you're, you're pretty straight on everything. There's not much for you in life. You could probably check out, like you could get the blanket and pillow out now if you need to. Um, th- this passage isn't really for those kind of people. Um, but if you're here today and you have any level of discouragement in your life or, or doubt or skepticism or, or maybe you're just exhausted, wearied, maybe you're a bit confused or angry or if any of those emotions or descriptions fit any component of your life today, you need to hear this passage. 
You need to hear what God has to say for us in this passage. So let's read it, uh, beginning in verse 2 of chapter 6, going down through verse 13. This is the word of the Lord. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. And Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask him to, to bless our, our, the preaching of it. Father, uh, I pray now that, um, that the meditations of all of our hearts gathered here and the words of this man's mouth would be pleasing to you, O Lord. You are our rock and you are our redeemer. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I listened to a number of podcasts and um, one of the podcasts that I listened to is called The Art of Manliness. Laugh, I know. I, I listen to a podcast called The Art of Manliness. I need tips and cues in that department. Um, but in, in one of the, it was a little while back, but in one of the editions, um, they, they interview, they do a lot of interviews on this particular podcast, and they interviewed a guy who wrote a book on male friendships. Um, and he was, he, he talks about what, what it means for men to be friends with each other. And uh, he in, in, a, in a large, I haven't read the book, but he describes in, in, a, in a large section of the book, he's, he's really putting against each other the difference between women and their friends and, and men and their friends. And there's a lot of differences, largely being women's are primarily driven uh, emotionally um, and physically, like they need to be together, men's uh, not so much. Um, but, but in this interview, he talked about, and he's really just laying out his book, so I imagine this is in the book, but he talked about um, the difference uh, in how men prefer their relationships to be shoulder to shoulder and where women prefer their relationships to be face to face. Right, so if um, you know if men want to be with their friends or be together, typically it's in a shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder fashion. So we'll either be watching television, 
right, a sports game, or we'll be doing work in the yard, or we'll be hiking, or we'll be doing something. You know, rarely do men really want face-to-face friendship. It's just, it's just not our nature. It, it can be awkward. Um, but, but he was just talking about how, how men are wired for shoulder-to-shoulder relationships, and women want face-to-face relationships, right? That's why our, our wives like to talk to us face-to-face. We prefer shoulder-to-shoulder. They want face-to-face. Um, and it really got me thinking um, about, you know, if, if, again, if you've been around kind of Bible-believing Christians at all, um, you've heard about what it means uh, to have a relationship with God. Um, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of been pop lingo, uh, you know, probably before I was a Christian, but, but to, to have a personal relationship with God is kind of status quo of what it means to be a Christian today, and, and that's true, I, I'm not demeaning that. Um, but, but I think um, all of us are inclined to have a bit of a shoulder-to-shoulder type relationship with God as opposed to a face-to-face relationship with God. So, so men and women alike. Um, many of us, I think, are inclined to, want to, to prefer being shoulder-to-shoulder with God, doing something as opposed to being face-to-face with God. Um, there is, um, th- there's a, a phrase that, that pops up in Christian literature over the ages. It's a Latin phrase, and it's called... Um, it's a, it's Coram Deo, which means in the presence of God or literally in the face of God. And um, it came to my mind as I was thinking about, you know, the kind of the broad brush strokes of Christianity, like what does it mean to live the Christian life? You know, that, that question can be summarized in a number of various ways. But one of the ways that that question, what does it mean to live a Christian life, could be summarized in that statement, Coram Deo. To live the entirety of our lives, everything that we do in the presence, in the very face of God. Um, see, this passage, in my mind, is a compelling invitation for every one of us to evaluate our relationship with God. For us to define the relationship, I'm going to tease that out kind of towards the end, but for us to really think about what does it mean to have a relationship with this God who's revealing himself in these scriptures. Um, Two things I want us to look at today. Um, I want us to look at the power of promises. God's going to make a a ton of promises here. Um, And then I want us to look at the problem of pain. So let's look at the power of promises, largely in verses 2 through 8. You'll notice, if you've been with us in the book of Exodus, you were here when God... Um, revealed his name as, as Yahweh, which in your English Bibles is translated into the all caps Lord, L-O-R-D, Lord. Um, he reveals himself here uh, in verses 2 and in 8 and in the middle of the speech as Yahweh again. It, it's kind of the bookends of, of God's speech here. So in verse 2 he says, I'm the Lord. In verse 8 he says, I'm the Lord. See how that kind of works in your Bibles? Um, and, and listen, this, uh, this is thick heavy Bible language um, around what we call the covenant. Um, Loaded term, uh, not going to unpack the entirety of it today. You've heard it from up here before. You'll hear it from up here again. Um, But this is uh, the way that God uh, begins communicating to his people is in terms of the covenant or the promise that he's made to us. And um, 
this is, this is not new information for these people, um, but it is, it is new application for them. So, it, like, if you look in verse 3, God says, um, to, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I made myself known as God Almighty, that is El Shaddai. Okay, so he's saying, in, in prior times, I've revealed myself in this way, kind of generic, transcendent terms, God Almighty. Uh, but now I've revealed myself in a new way, the Lord, Yahweh. Now, again, not new information. In fact, if you read the book of Genesis, capital Lord is, is all over that. And so it, it's not new information. Actually, there, there's all kinds of you know, speculation as to maybe, maybe there's a couple different authors who wrote this and had later information. I'm not... Listen, God had given them the information of his name, but is now applying it in new ways and what that means for their relationship with him. Um, think about it this way. It's, it's, kinda, it's, it's a lot like um, being in a, in a romantic relationship, being in a marriage. There is a, a big difference between knowing about your wife and knowing your wife, Right? Like, like, you can know your spouse on paper. Like, you can know them well. Uh, you can, you can kind of delineate things and facts and information about them. But I promise you this, that is not enough. Uh, there is a, a large gap, right, between knowing things about your spouse and knowing your spouse. And God here is, is, is really teasing that out. He, he, he's, he's really showing... Uh, how, what it means uh, to close that gap between pure information about God and real experience with God. That's what he's doing here. Um, and so God reveals himself as someone who both personally relates to his people in a very real way, uh, but he also permanently relates to them. Personally, in that individually, God has committed himself to his people. That's what the name begins to reveal, and he's revealing to Moses that, is that there is, a, um, there is a deep level of commitment on God to his people that withstands all circumstances, which makes it permanent, that, that God isn't going like, to renegotiate terms. Right? Like he's not going to kind of look down the corridor and say, well, you're not really who I thought you were. Right? Like, I thought I knew you on paper, but now I really know you, and... That promise I made to you, not so much. Um, God begins to close that gap, um, to close the gap between knowledge and experience, and it happens in relationship with him. Um, we have, uh, in, in our tradition, to be well-read or you know, theologically astute or you know, kind of be able to verse the knowledge of the Bible off the tip of your tongue, that's held in very high esteem, and that, and that is important. I'm not saying theology, knowing the Bible is not important. Um, but in our tradition, and I think representative in this group, is, is the trouble of the, of the information traveling from here to here, right? And so, like, that, that's a big distance um, from our... From our intellectual ascent to come into experiential reality like that that's that's a big difference and you know so so god um begins to reveal that it's not he's not just interested in like information download 
Like just here's a core of beliefs, kind of put those in, you've got those on lockdown and you'll be good to get through the hard times, right? Like he's not doing that with Israel. Um, what he begins to do is to show them that pure knowledge, just theology, just knowing God on paper breeds cynicism and self-righteousness when what really they needed is a deep spiritual experience with the living God. And, and so God's antidote for their times of discouragement, which they are in the thick of, is not more information that they didn't already have, it's revealing his commitment to make the promises that he's already made. And so as I read the text, if I didn't make it obvious enough, God says he will do seven things. I will make you my people. I will take you out of enslavement. I will bring you into the land. I will be your God. So God begins to make these deep commitments to his people. So let's, let's do this. Um, you're an Israelite. Uh, you, you've, you've only known Egypt, right? You've been, you've been under enslavement for generations. Uh, your children were born into enslavement. Uh, you've heard the whispers of Israelites, pr the promises, but really all you know is, is paganism. And, and all you know is, is darkness. And all you know is hurt. Um, what, what is it that would, that would help you get through that? It's not information. I, I, it's not. It's not just facts. Um, what it is, and this is what God does, it's God looking at you in your face and saying he's fully committed to you in spite of all of your circumstances. Like, like the God of the heavens above, like staring you individually and personally down and saying, I'm committed to you no matter what. Like I see all of your flaws. I see all of your imperfections. I see all of your weaknesses. None of that is new information to me and I'm still committed to you. Now, now when, that, when that kind of level of commitment kind of trickles down from up here and it starts kind of getting in there, that's when things start to change in your life. And so, you know, the, the, the power of God's people persevering in their current circumstances isn't found in just knowing more things about God. It's knowing God himself and his deep levels of commitment to them. And so, the way that they take the next step isn't to just believe about some misty, foggy future that they've been told about, but to believe that God is good to his word. Like that God is utterly committed to what he has said he will do and then take the next step. That's what, that's what God's doing in his speech. But here's, here's the problem. Um, that good news is hard to hear. And the reason the good news is hard to hear is because of the problem of pain. So let's look at the, the verses 9 to 13 and how God's people respond to these lasting and powerful promises that God makes to them in verses 9 to 13. Uh, the question, uh, let me just read verse 9 again. So Moses tells the people all of these promises. Listen, I've met with Yahweh. 
He's told me he will do this, he will do this, 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 and this, and he's completely committed to us. Cue the crowd, right? You'd think, yay. You know, like, God hasn't left us. It's all going to be great. No. Verse 9. So Moses tells them this, but they did not. In fact, the Hebrew suggests that they could not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. And so at the outset, I mean, the text makes it abundantly clear that there is a struggle with belief. Um, So the question is, is this unbelief? Like if the Israelites completely abandoned their faith in God and all of his promises, I I would say no. Like you drift your eyes back up just to the end of chapter 4 and they were believing and worshiping God. Like they believed the promises, but the struggle was still there. And so I wouldn't say these are unbelieving hearts. What I would say is that these are cold and discouraged hearts. Ever had one of those? Like, like, like the, the root of belief hasn't left, but the warmth of it has. And so experientially, here the Israelites are experiencing what life in Egypt is like. And, and to put it just in a summary fashion, it's to be stripped of everything you know. Like their entire identity has been stripped to the bone. They don't know who they are anymore. Uh, like the confusion and the fog of their identity in God is lost on them. And um, I, know, I know this room feels that. I mean, I, I, know, I know our church. I know that there is this searing pain um, that, that, that has got into some of us, right? Uh, like death. Um, tragic death, losing children, um, losing family, friends. Like, that is a searing loss that cannot just be glossed over. Um, or or maybe, it's even, maybe it's even just very real levels of um, pain, like physical suffering. I mean, because the Israelites, I mean, they physically suffered. Um, enslavement, you know, it wasn't, you know, 18th, 19th century American slavery, but it was, it was grueling, um, it, was, it was grinding, and it, was, it, it physically hurt them. And, and I know we struggle with that. And so, you know, when suffering, just it, when, it's, when it's the record that's always playing, what it begins to do is it begins to sear off or freeze the heart a bit. It's cold. Um... Or, or maybe it's just, maybe yours isn't that deep. Maybe it's not death and evil and suffering. Maybe, maybe yours is just kind of the, the narrative of your life of, of, of constant rejection. Like never really fully being received for your potential, right? So whether it's in romance or whether it's in workplace or, or whatever, whatever that looks like. Kind of this, this pattern of always being rejected and never being embraced. Like that begins to... to to cold the conscience a little bit, like to, it, it begins to just frost hearts. And, um, and that's what's going on here. They cannot hear the good news because their hearts are cold and discouraged. And so, you know, the question is, well, how, how, do, how do cold hearts get warm? I mean, what is, 
what is the, the solution to the problem? And the answer is, it's when someone, again, looks at them and says, I refuse to let you go. Like, I, I am so committed to you that your heart, though it is cold and hard and stubborn, is mine. And, and not only am I saying that, I'll never give up on you, but I will prove it to you. That begins to warm a cold heart. Um, see, uh, there's, there's a, a book. I've been reading a lot of books on leadership lately. There's a book that um, I think it's Peter Drucker. I didn't do a good job doing my fact-checking here. I think it's Peter Drucker's Seven Habits of a Highly Effective Leader. One of, one of the habits is he talks about uh, how you uh, begin with the end in mind. And he, he talks about kind of how you're supposed to um, envision your funeral. It's a little morbid, um, but, you know, like you're supposed to think about your death and your funeral and who you want around the casket and what that's going to look like and, and what that, you know, what the end of your earthly life looks like and then to build backwards, right? Like, it, you know, like to, to build your life on thinking about the end in mind. Um, and I think, I think God shows us that relationships that last are, are actually built backwards, uh, especially speaking to your relationship with God. Um, because if, you, if your relationship with God is, is only built on either present-day comfort um, and, and no end in mind at all, like, it, I mean, that would be, it would be very American of you um, to just think about the now, right? I mean, it's, it's what we're primarily consumed with and concerned about. Um, uh, one way another author puts it, and, and by the way, when I mention books, I'm not like getting commission or anything on these things, but I get a lot of my ideas from books. Uh, one, one of the ways uh, an author put it in a book that I just finished called Death by Suburb, How to Keep the Suburbs from Killing Your Soul. Um, it's a good title. It's a good title. Uh, he, he, he kind of puts into perspective how in our lifestyle and context, a lot of times, you know, everything that we're doing to build our life is around present-day comfort. And, um, and he labels those things as immortality symbols um, because, because these symbols uh, really represent for us what we think eternal life is about because these symbols give us some of the depth and the worth that we are actually looking for that we ought to be finding in other places. So in, in suburban context, these symbols are our children, right? And so, you know, the, the, the screaming uh, motto of today is do everything for your children, and if your children are a success, you'll be, you'll be satisfied, and you'll be happy. Uh, you know, obviously, immortality symbols can be status in large homes and fancy cars, and I'm not really going to hop on that soapbox too high, but, but like those are things that we oftentimes build our life around in order to provide present-day comfort and reality. And this author suggests that we ought to be building our life towards the end in what he calls the thicker life. And so, again, what is it that's going to carry God's people through the hardest times? Like, like when cancer comes. Like that. Like when our children make poor choices. Um, like, like when tragedy occurs. Like should we lose a child? What's going to carry us through that? When you lose your job. You know, when your 401k 
just plummet? Like, what is it that will withstand that kind of disappointment? And the answer is, the only way to know that is to believe that that God still loves you. I'm convinced of this. Because what is the immediate thing that you think, whether consciously or subconsciously, when something goes bad in your life? Does God still love me? How, how could this happen to me? Like God loves me. I know that. But how can this happen if, he, if that's true? Um, and the only way to know that God loves you and relates for, uh, to you is by understanding how he would pursue you. Um, it's in verse 6 here. It's, it's just littered all over Exodus how God describes the way he'll rescue you from that. And it's through an outstretched arm. You, you caught that language? You're, you're, you know, if you're versed in the Bible, you, you probably use it in all kinds of weird ways. But that, that God would save you through this powerful outstretched arm, but in ways that you would never predict, because here's how he did it best. He did it by stretching out his arms, climbing on a tree, and pinning them there. And so a God who would do that for someone like you is a God that you can relate to. Like a God that doesn't just kind of like a cursory, oh, you're going through hard times, I, you know, we'll get you through this. But a God who faced the most difficult, searing loss in the entire landscape of eternity, the loss of his own living son, the son of the living God, Jesus on a cross, is the very thing that connects you to that God relationally. I mean, we sang it in those lyrics, how deep the Father's love for us. It's the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away. And so, do you want to relate to a God who understands rejection? Through God in Christ. Do you want to understand through a God who understands pain, suffering, and evil at the highest levels? Through God in Christ. Do you want to understand what it means to be uh, utterly confused by tragedy, loss, and death that surrounds you? Through God in Christ. The book of Hebrews tells us this, to fix your eyes on Jesus. Look to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him, what was the joy? Well, immediately it was pain and suffering. He endured the cross, the pain and suffering, despised the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. That's the good news that this passage leads us to. So let me, let me kind of close this. I hinted it at the beginning, but I think this is kind of a defining the relationship moment. Like if you're hearing what I'm hearing in, in Exodus and how God is so utterly committed to his people, it would be reckless and irresponsible of you to not define what that relationship looks like. Um, you know, when I use terms like this, I realize how out of the game I've been for so long. Um, I've been married for 14 years now. I don't think we defined relationships back then. I don't know if that's a new thing, but, but this is the lingo, right? You define your relationship, like where are we at romantically? What are we doing, right? And there's, there's all kinds of ways people do that. But, but let, let, me just kinda, let me just put this on your table for you to consider this morning. Um, what is your relationship with God like? 
Um, is it is it purely shoulder to shoulder? Like like um, it's it's kind of it's kind of like we're we're co-laborers. We're like working buddies, like do, bit, doing each other's bidding a little bit. Like hey God, I'll take care of that. You take care of this kind of thing. I mean, maybe it's maybe it's got that transactional feel. Like you've got a transactional relationship with God. Like you know you know God, I will I will attend church. I will tithe faithfully. I will serve. I'll do all these things. But you know I, I'd like you to really kind of do these things for me. It's kind of got that transactional feel. Uh, or, or maybe it's just a, just a long-distance relationship. Like, it's, it's kind of, it's just, there is, there is no relationship. Like, long-distance relationships are hard to keep, and it's possible, I've seen it done. But, but really, it's, it's kind of, it's just strained, and it, there's no intimacy to it. There's no face-to-face. It's just, he's like the, the uncle that when you show up at the reunion, you kind of know him. And so you can kind of reconnect with him, but it's distant. Um, or maybe, you know, maybe God is just, he's, he's in the, as they say, kids these days, he's in the friend zone. Like he's a good guy. I, I'm, not mad, I'm not mad at him. He seems like he's doing good things. I, I'd kind of like to be his, I mean, we're friends. I'm at church. I mean, I, I, he set up this church thing. I go to that. Um, but, but it's kind of always stayed there like a friendly relationship. Um, let me just compel you and invite you, if, if, if that's you on any level, to move from a generic, distant relationship with a God that you really don't know to go face-to-face with this God through God in Christ. Like to be quorum Deo, in the very presence, in the face of God who has been made available to anyone who would believe, anyone, to anyone who would pursue that would be given the opportunity to have face-to-face, quorum deo relationship with him. I pray that that would be true of us, church. Let's pray. Father, I think I probably speak for many of us here that uh, we, we often and frequently are the cold-hearted and distant Israelites. Uh, Lord, we've been pressed and burdened and, and crushed by our own sinfulness and the sinfulness of others upon us, which we did not bring on ourselves. Um, and that has resulted in high levels of guilt or shame, um, And Lord, we thank you that you came and you took flesh on yourself. The God became a man so that you would know our internal experience on earth. Like, thank you that you're a God that relates to us. You're not not just a transcendent deity who who looks down on us, but you're you're an incarnational deity who comes to us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would draw hearts, even cold, weary hearts, closer to your son Jesus this morning, that we might be quorum deo with him, that we might see him face to face and fix our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, would you do that? In his name we pray. Amen.